All right. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, there will be a Forever Young ministry meeting uh, in um, raising money for the Lapeer Pregnancy Center. We have, um, let's see, around 10 that still need to be turned in. So if you have that and you know that's you, go ahead and get on that. We'd like those back as soon as possible. So um, go ahead and turn into your Bibles to the book of Haggai. Um, I know you're like, whoa. I don't know if I've ever heard anything out of Haggai before. don't know where it is. Well, it's in the Old Testament towards the end, um, right between a couple of books that start with the letter Z. So if you can find those, look for the one in the middle. That's where it's at. Um, if you're a visitor here today, um, I'm not the guy who's normally up here. Uh, I'm a better-looking version of that guy. But uh, <laughs> if you want to see him, you'll have to come back in a couple weeks because you'll be stuck with me again next week. So, uh, but if you are a visitor, go ahead and fill out the information card. Uh, it should be in the back of the seats, I believe. And uh, take that to the Welcome Center after the service. There should be a gift there for you for that. So, um, like I said, we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai this week. And uh, so a couple weeks ago, I knew what I was going to be preaching on the two weeks, this week and next week, but I just wasn't sure which one I was going to do either week because they're not really part of a series or anything. Uh, they're separate from each other, aside from the fact that they're both out of the Bible. So don't worry about that. We will be preaching out of the Bible. Um, but um, last week, if you were here, we had Unity Fest. We were outside, and uh, Pastor John, he was preaching uh, out of the Old Testament, which kind of stole a little bit of my thunder preaching out of the Old Testament, but, you know, it is what it is. But he uh, was preaching a little bit out of Ezra, and I was like, well, that's pretty awesome because... Ezra and Haggai, the timeline matches up really well. They're separated in the Bible. Ezra's all the way towards the front of the Old Testament. Haggai's towards the end. But chronologically, they overlap a little bit. So it worked out really well that um, he was preaching out of that a little bit last week. So God definitely had a plan for what we were going to be talking about this week. Um, but, you know, just a little bit of um, thoughts about the Old Testament. You know, a lot of times people, you know, you don't hear a lot of preaching out of the Old Testament as much as you do the New Testament. Um, but a lot of people, they'll think, you know, well, the Old Testament's boring, you know, uh, it's just a bunch of laws and genealogies, there's not much there for you to be able to read. Um, but the fact is, that's pretty much the complete opposite. Yes, there's laws and there's genealogies, but it's actually really exciting to read through the Old Testament for a couple of reasons. One, you know, you have lots of epic fights and battles, so that can appeal to the guys. If you're a girl, there's some, there's some love stories there. So... Um, you know, the Old Testament isn't just a bunch of laws and, and genealogies. Um, but most importantly, the Old Testament is the, old, is the story that leads to God sending the promise that he, he talked about after Adam sinned in Genesis, and that's Jesus. So if you think about the Old Testament that way, about how it paves the way for Jesus to come and be the Savior of the world, it's really exciting to be able to read through the Old Testament with that in mind. Um, so a little bit of background on the book of Haggai. Um, Haggai was, he was a prophet. He was what we call a minor prophet. Um, he wasn't shorter than the other prophets. It was just, you know, his book compared to some of the other ones like Isaiah. It's just a shorter book. Um, but that also doesn't make what he talked about any less significant. Um, but like I said before, it's, it's really related to what we talked about last week out of Ezra. Um, and Pastor John talked about how the Israelites, they were just coming back to, the, to their own land from being in captivity for so long. Um, and we, we read in Ezra uh, chapter 3 there that immediately when they got back, they set up an altar to 
to be able to make sacrifices to God. Um, so we talked about how immediately when they got back, they got right to where they needed to be as far as worshiping God. That was like their number one priority, which is awesome. But as you read through a little bit of Ezra and then um, some in Nehemiah, you see how they kind of fall away from that. They kind of lose focus of things. Um, and that's kind of where Haggai kind of comes into place. Um, but what we talked about last week when they came back from captivity is about 538 B.C., so 538 years before Jesus was born. Um, and they came back, and as, once they came back, a man named Zerubbabel, we're going to read about him this morning, he, uh, he started to get things going again. He started to rebuild the temple. They were rebuilding the wall um, that was all destroyed when they were came, uh, taken captive. Um, but 538, that's when they first come back. They start to build the temple. That's when the first wave of people kind of start coming back. And uh, as we read throughout the Bible um, and other historical records, we can see that different groups of people kind of slowly migrated back to the land uh, over about the next hundred years. So, and then we come to Haggai, which takes place about 520 B.C. So you got to remember, B.C., the numbers count down. So about 18 years after they had gotten back. Um, but as we read in Ezra and a little bit in Nehemiah, we see that there was an obstacle about two years after they got back. They got back, they started rebuilding things, but there was a group of, of people who were in opposition to them in doing that, and it was the Samaritans. We can see that reading through a little bit of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, they pretty much, they were doing whatever they could to slow them down from rebuilding things. Uh, they were mocking them, doing all kinds of things like that. So about two years after they got back, that started to take place. Um, and for about the next six years, from what we can kind of, put together from the different passages. Um, and then from that point, 530 B.C. to where we come to Haggai, about 10 years, there was pretty much no, being, no building being built, no wall being built, none of that. So the rebuilding of the temple had stopped completely. So just to kind of give us an idea, they come back from being in captivity for so long, and they immediately realize that they need to go to God. They build an altar so that they can uh, offer sacrifices up to him. But it didn't take very long before outside issues started, you know, getting in their way and distracting them. And then before too long, they were completely distracted 100% from spending time with God and, and doing what they needed to be doing. Um, so this is where the book of Haggai comes in. So uh, before we read some of the passage, which we're going to read a good portion of the book, so be ready for that. Um, but this whole idea of them coming back, they came back from captivity, and they immediately set up an altar to God. They were, they were passionate. They were on fire to come back and worship God. You know, he delivered them through everything that they already had gone through before going all the way back to the time in Egypt. But he delivered them out of captivity. They're back in their homeland, and they're really excited, thanking God, praising God. It reminded me a lot of um, back when I was in youth group. You know, we would go to church camp, and, you know, you're away from your normal everyday distractions, friends back home, or electronics, whatever it might be, and you're able to really just focus on God for about four or five days. And, you know, when we would go, like the last night we were there, we would all kind of sit around and just talk about how God had been working with, working in us through that, throughout the week. Um, and we come back, and, you know, you still have that fire when you come back. You still want to be serving God, following through with the decisions that you made while you were away. But over time, our normal everyday life gets back in to... Uh, gets back into the routine, our distractions come up, and before too long, we've completely forgot about the decisions that we made while we were at camp. So that's a lot of 
you know, what the, the Israelites were dealing with here. They came back, they were on fire for God, but outside distractions came in, and before too long, they were just completely almost ignoring God altogether. Um, so like I said, we're going to read the majority of the book here. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 1, um, but we're going to read the whole first chapter really quick, um, or as quick as I can read it, and allowing you to follow along. So, um, starting Haggai 1, chapter 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye, ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe, but ye there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go out to the mountain, and bring wood, and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear the Lord, fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. All right, so as we're reading through there, there's a few things that um, I want us to kind of draw our attention to. Um, going back into verse four, we really see that the people, they're working on their own homes, their own houses. Um, and while they're doing that, they're ignoring building the temple of God, building God's house. So they're working on, you know, they're focused on their houses, their own homes while the house of the Lord is still in ruins. You know, they had started building it up again, but uh, like we talked about before, the Samaritans kind of, you know, were hindering them, and it stopped altogether. So God's house is still laying in ruins, and they're all, you know, upgrading their houses. They're focusing on their own lives, their own plans. Um, and we, again, we see that in verse 4. He says, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? So, Really what's happening here, we see there in verse 4, he says the sealed houses. That's talking, pretty much what that's referring to is they have kind of luxuries that most people wouldn't have in their houses. They're working on little details of their house. Um, so it's like maybe if you were adding on to your house, putting on an addition or redoing the roof, something like that, upgrading your house. Um, because as we read before, they've already been back for about 18 years. So they've had their homes built and now they're, you know, upgrading them, building onto them, whatever it might be, 
but they're working on the details of their houses and their lives while God's house still lays in ruins. Um, and so what, what's really the significance of that? You're like, okay, well, we know we talk about how church isn't just a building. We can be the church outside. We can go wherever and still live for Christ and be the church. Um, that's true. But back then, as we read through the Old Testament, we know that a, really their religion was really religious. And what I mean by that is they relied a lot on different rituals um, and, you know, a lot of things happening every so often. Sacrifices, you know, they had their different um, things that they celebrated, different holidays and stuff like that. So their religion, their relationship with, with God was much more ritualistic than what ours is today. Um, and so with all these rituals that they would normally do in the temple, um, that's not really happening with the temple not being there. And in fact, the temple was designed around some of these rituals. You know, we know about the different sections of the temple. You have the Holy of Holies and all that, all the different portions of the different uh, things out in the courtyard, all of those things that the temple was designed and built around these different rituals that, that were part of the law. Um, and so without the temple being there, it probably meant that their rituals, whatever it might be, sacrifices, probably wasn't happening or occurring as frequently as they should have been. So what does that mean? If they're having irregular rituals or irregular sacrifices, sacrifices that they're bringing to the God to cover up the sins that they may have committed, then really what they're doing is kind of having the attitude, they're not really saying it, but they have the attitude of, well, my sin's fine. I don't really need to worry about that. Um, so that's how far they drifted. We see them come back from being in captivity. They immediately set up an altar to praise and worship God, to offer sacrifices, and then they get building on their houses. And then 18 years later, they're to the point to where, you know, they're, they're almost ignoring God completely because they're all focused on their own houses, their own lives, their own plans. Um, and then we see later on, or actually earlier on in verse 2, he talks, they're giving excuses. Um, they say, and it says in the second half of that verse, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So they're pretty much saying, it, it's, yes, we know we're gonna, it needs to be rebuilt. We're going to rebuild it, but not right now. Now is not the time to do it. Um, and so they're making these excuses, uh, saying that it's not time to do it. And there might be multiple reasons as to why that is. There might be some of them that are still maybe nervous or afraid of the people who were slowing them down, mocking them, the, the Samaritans. Uh, some of them might just be so much more focused on their own lives that they really don't want to draw away from that to take care of God's house. So just to kind of summarize what they're, how they're acting, how they're behaving, they're focused on their own houses or their lives or their own plans. Um, they're justifying or ignoring their sin, and they're also making excuses. Um, does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound like something that we tend to do? Um, because it is, in case you didn't know that. Um, we do those things. We, we make excuses. We um, get focused on our own lives and our own plans and forget God's plans. Um, so much so that a lot of times we'll ignore the fact that we're sinning or justify it. Be like, well, yeah, I, I, I know that I did this, but I, I know that I've been ignoring God, haven't been praying, reading my Bible, but things have been really busy in my life lately. You know, we make excuses. We, we ignore those. Um, but basically, there's, there's many different ways in our lives that we put our own wants, desires, or plans ahead of Christ. Um, and there's a, there's a quote from St. Augustine, which is really, really awesome. Um, so I would encourage you to write it down. Uh, the quote is, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. 
think about that. If we're not valuing Christ in every single aspect of our life, if we're not putting him above everything, our jobs, our families, our friendships, whatever it might be, if we're not putting him above everything, then it's as if we're not valuing him at all. We're like, if we think about who God is, who Jesus is, what he did, he saved us. God sent his son to save us to cover our sins so that we don't have to spend eternity in hell. But also on top of that, this is the creator of the universe. This is the God who gave us life, who breathed life into us. And we're allowing our hobbies or whatever it might be to take precedence over that. Um, and so if we're allowing that to happen, then we're either acknowledging it and ignoring the fact that God is this awesome, powerful God who gave us life, or we're not really even completely understanding it at all. Um, but that just try and remember that phrase, that quote, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Um, so basically, you know, we can relate to the Israelites in all these areas. We, we find ourselves doing these things throughout our life at one point or another. Um, so how can we learn from this? What are some lessons that we can take from the book of Haggai looking at the Israelites? Um, so number one, we're going to look at the fact that they were focusing on their own houses or their own plans. Um, and so doing that, focusing on our own houses or focusing on our own plan and ignoring God's plan is always going to have a negative consequence no matter what. Uh, look at verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1. It says, Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. So what's happening? God's saying that because you're focused on your own things right now, and you're ignoring my house, my house that needs to be rebuilt, so that we can have the proper relationship that I want to have with you, because you're ignoring that and you're focused on your own things, I'm allowing all these other things to happen, these droughts, these famines, all these things, all this work that you're putting into these things, and it's not coming back how you would like it to come back. So what is he referencing here? He's referencing back further uh, towards the beginning of the Old Testament. He's referencing back to two passages, really. One is Leviticus 26, which, you know, you think about the Old Testament, you think it's boring. That's probably the number one book that people go to is Leviticus because it's literally a bunch of laws and a bunch of genealogies. Um, but looking at those is important for us. You know, you might see, why do I need to read three chapters of this guy be that beget this guy and he begat this guy? Like, what, what's the importance of that? Um, the importance is we can see how God was, like I said before, how God was able to take Adam from the garden even after he sinned and did all, allowed all these circumstances to happen throughout history leading up to Christ. And we can see God working through all those different stories and all those different bloodlines. So that's why that's important. And reading through those laws in Leviticus um, or, you know, just looking at the Ten Commandments, that's important because, yes, we know that we are freed from the law through Christ, but that doesn't mean that the law is irrelevant to us now. What the law really is like now, I don't know if you've heard kind of the illustration of it's almost like a mirror. We can kind of look at the law and look back at ourselves as far and see, okay, where do I line up as far if these are how God's guidelines and how it's supposed to be and I don't measure up, we realize, okay, yeah, I don't measure up. I'm not going to be able to fulfill all these laws. I'm not perfect in God's eyes. That shows us that we need Jesus. So 
even though we don't have to, you know, we're freed from the law because of Jesus, the law being there, us being able to read through it and understand it shows us how much we need Jesus and why we need him in the first place. But the two passage, again, passages that he's referencing is Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Um, and just, we're not going to go and read through those passages, but basically what's happening in those two passages is God is pretty much giving out the, the guidelines of, if you follow these laws, if you do what I tell you to do, if, you know, you're living how I want you to live, then you're going to be blessed. Your land will be blessed. You're going to see it in your crops and your livestock, everything, you're going to be blessed. And on the flip side, if you don't do these things, if you don't live how I want you to live, then bad things are going to happen to that. You're going to experience famine or drought. And pretty much that's what he's referencing here. He's saying that you're ignoring my laws, you're ignoring me, and because of that, I'm following through on my promise, and now all these things are happening. All these things are being taken away, these droughts and everything. So because they were focused on themselves, they weren't receiving the blessings that they could have been receiving. And we see that in verse 6 of chapter 1. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes. Which, in case you didn't know, you're not going to save up much money doing it that way if you're just putting it in holes. Um, that's not, it's not the best way to invest or to try and save up some money. But we see there, he's talking about, you know, you're putting all this work into your land and you're not getting much back. You know, you're putting this, and we see later in chapter 2, he talks about how you put out this much and you only get half back of what you're wanting to get. Um, think about that. Like, you know, we live in a farming community. Think about if you were to, if you had a farm and you spend hours and hours and hours at the beginning of the season tilling up the land, getting the dirt ready to plant, and then you're, you're planting all of your, your crops, whatever it might be, and you're putting all this work and labor into it, and then at the end of the season, only half of it comes back to you. That's going to be pretty devastating, one, because you're going to feel like you wasted all that time, but two, that's a lot of money lost as well. So we can kind of understand, you know, what he's telling them here, because we, we live in a community where we can really see that firsthand, how devastating that could be. And so the fact that they're ignoring God, they're focusing on their own lives and everything, God is taking these things away from them. He's allowing this to happen to them. And so it's not like it's really just a slap on the wrist or anything like that. If this were to continue on over years and years, they would suffer. They would die off. Um, and so this is a pretty harsh punishment, but it's one that he told them that would come if they weren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so really what this drought in the land is all these things that aren't really coming forth like they should be, the drought in the land is really a representation or a picture of the drought that is in their hearts because they have all this time where they haven't been spending time with Jesus, haven't been spending time with God, and that's neglecting. And we've seen that in our own lives, I'm sure. You know, we ignore God and our hearts end up suffering. You know, we get caught up in our own, you know, activities, whatever it might be, and we get so distracted in that and before we know it, it's been weeks, months, whatever it might be before or since we've spent time in God's word reading through um, his message to us and really our heart suffers from it. Um, so much so that when we do get back into it, like we realize how much we were suffering. Sometimes we don't realize as we're doing it, but when we get back into the word, we get back into uh, spending time with God through prayer, we realize how much we were missing out on. You know, a lot of times we think that our life is going well but we don't realize how much we're missing out on by not spending time with God. Um, 
And that's what they're experiencing here. So that, that drought in the land was a representation of the drought in their hearts. So just like the Israelites, if we ignore God, our hearts will suffer. Um, the second thing that I want to look at is talking about completely obeying, um, wholeheartedly obeying God. And so for that, we're going to read through the uh, first portion of chapter 2. So Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to read right now the first nine verses of that chapter. Verse 1 says, In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, All right, so just to backtrack, the last verse that we read in verse 1 says, In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month. And then this one says, the In the seventh month, uh, in the one and twentieth day of the month. So this is really less than a month later from when they started to rebuild the temple. God gave Haggai this message, message Haggai passed it on, and we see, you know, this obedience from them. And then right away, like less than a month later, we see this next message. So verse 2 says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you? that saw this house in her first glory. And how do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you, and when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens, and the earth and the sea, and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill the house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. All right, so other than reading the Lord of Hosts about 20 times in those verses, um, what else do we see there? Um, again, we, he, he's really, God's really sending this message of encouragement to them. Um, he's telling them to persevere. And so you're thinking, you kind of look back to chapter 1, and again, we saw at the end what time of the year this happened, and then we start the next chapter, and we see less than a month later, God is sending them this message of encouragement. So we can see or pretty much deduce from that that within that first month they're already getting discouraged probably one because it's a, a huge project for them to undertake um, because when we read about the original temple how great and vast and how amazing and beautiful it was you can imagine that this one you know if it's going to be anything like that one it's going to take a lot of hard work so they're being they're getting discouraged for that reason um, but another reason that they're they're getting discouraged is there's probably still some people among them who remember what the old temple was like, whether it was firsthand or they had heard from their older relatives who um, were in the land before they were taken captive. Um, and so there's probably some of them that are remembering what the old one was like, and they're seeing the condition of this one now and thinking about how much work it's going to take. And then on top of that, they're probably thinking, no matter how much work we put into this, there's no way it's going to be as beautiful and awesome as the last one was. So they're getting discouraged just within the matter of a month. Um, so God sends this message to Haggai to encourage them. Um, basically, God reminds them that he's with them and that he's been with them ever since they 
were in Egypt and left Egypt. We see that in uh, verse 5. Um, he's telling them that I've been with you, even drawing you out of Egypt, so fear not. Um, basically, he's reminding them of where he's brought them from. And a lot of times when we get discouraged, you know, we get distracted from God, um, and we're trying to deal with things in our lives, and we're really not focusing on God, looking to him to help us through that. We're not really remembering where we were before and where God brought us from. We need to remember where God has brought us from before. Most importantly, obviously, he brought us from being sinners to now we're saved and we get to spend an eternity with him. But on top of that, we all have different circumstances throughout our lives that we've all been through that as we're going through them, we don't think we're going to get through them. Um, and sometimes even as we get through and get out of it, we're not even thinking the fact that God is guiding us through, he's carrying us through that situation. But, you know, sometime down the road you can look back and reflect on it and you can see, wow, God was working in every single instance of this situation, even though I was completely distracted, focused on my own, my own desires, my own wants, my own plans, God was in control every step of the way. Um, so God's reminding them where he, they were before and where he's brought them since then. And on top of that, not that he just bring them out of Egypt, but they were in captivity for so long, and now he's brought them back to their land. So it's so quickly are they able to forget and get distracted um, as far as, you know, just at the end of the first chapter, we see them excited to follow after God, almost immediate obedience when Haggai gives this message to them, and they're already getting discouraged. They're taking their focus off God again, and they're looking at the physical part of the temple. They're looking at, thinking about the temple, the old temple's physical beauty itself. Um, but what they're really forgetting is the whole point of the beauty of the original temple, why it was so amazing and beautiful, had all these precious stones and precious metals in it, all this gold. Um, the reason it was that way, the beauty of the temple was really to reflect God's beauty to them. When they go in there, they're supposed to see this and just be in awe of the temple. And really, that's just to really remind them how much in awe they need to be of God, reminding them of how amazing, awesome, and really beautiful God is. So basically, they were forgetting who God was. They were forgetting how he'd brought them out of captivity before in Egypt, how he's brought them out of captivity now, and they're focused solely on the external beauty, the external appearance of the temple, and they're getting discouraged uh, from it. Um, but we see in these verses, verses 1 through 9, um, or in, in the second chapter of Haggai, we see God talking about um, the temple that's going to come, the next temple, talking about how it's going to be even better than the previous one. <clears throat> and again, them being uh, humans like us, being so caught up in the physical things, the things that we can see, the things we can touch, they're probably thinking, okay, this temple that we're building is going to be awesome. It's going to be even greater than the previous one. But they're really missing what it is that God's talking about, the new temple. The new temple that's to come is Jesus, the coming glory of Jesus. Um, and we're, we have the advantage of being able to look back, read this, read through to the New Testament, and we can understand what he's talking about here. Um, but that new temple being Jesus, but they were focused on the old temple. And so because of that, God was taking the fact that they were focused on that. He's trying to encourage them, push them along the way. He goes, okay, well, I'm going to put this in terms that's going to light a fire under you or motivate you. The new temple, the temple that's going to come, is going to be greater than this one. Um, but when we look back and we see talk of the old temple and we know that Jesus is the new temple, we can kind of compare the two. Um, we know that the old temple, you know, there was rituals and sacrifices that took place there. 
and that covered the sin, you know, but it only covered for a certain amount of time because then they had to go through more rituals, make more sacrifices, um, because it, was, it wasn't a permanent solution. And even going back to Genesis and reading about the promise that is to come being Jesus, we know that these sacrifices that we're making, we know from then that it's never intended to be a permanent solution um, to cover their sins or to um, make them clean in God's eyes. Um, because no matter what they did, they were still ultimately going to be sinners. And so that's the old temple. The old temple has all those rituals and sacrifices to cover the sin. But the new temple, Jesus, he covers all of the sin. He covers all of our sin forever. And it, it, it's not something that we have to continually, you know, ask for the forgiveness of, every, like, yes, we need to confess our sins even now being saved. We need to confess our sins to God, come to him, you know, but be thankful for the forgiveness that we know that we already have. We know that God was going to, God already forgave me for a sin I'm going to commit two years from now before I even know that I'm going to do it. He's already, for, I've already accepted that forgiveness when I've accepted his salvation. <clears throat> and so that, that's the new temple, Jesus. He's going to cover all sin. So that right there, that's a pretty good upgrade from the old temple where you got to go and you got to do all these different things a certain way. The high priest goes in and he does his thing. And so you got to have all that. And then now we get to go to Jesus directly. We get to have this direct relationship with Christ and with God. And that's the new temple. That's how the new temple is a thousand, a million times better than the old one. Um, but we look at both temples, the old one, and it's amazing beauty. And we look at the new one, Jesus, and they're both a reflection of God's beauty. And Jesus mostly being a reflection of God's beauty, which is his love. Like the beauty of God is his love that he has towards us. No matter what we do, he still loves us. He still wants to have a relationship with us. Um, so reading through this, we can really kind of relate to the Israelites here as far as getting discouraged really in a short matter of time. If you want to go back to that original illustration I used of going to church camp and coming back, being excited and fired up to serve God, um, <clears throat> a lot of times it really doesn't take much time to become discouraged and forget about that. Uh, it would probably take even less time if, when we come back, we went right into school because that's where a lot of the distractions come for teenagers um, is being at school, being around friends, whatever it might be. Um, a lot of outside distractions can come in that way. Um, so we can really understand how so quickly they got discouraged. In chapter 1, they followed after God obediently and they were excited about building the temple. Less than a month later, they were already discouraged. But the point that we need to focus on as far as, okay, what, what's the point that I take with, from this? And that is that wholehearted obedience, which we see from them at the end of chapter 1, brings blessing. But it's not always immediate. Now, we can definitely relate to that. Um, and one thing that, I mean, I'm sure some of the teens in here that hear me talk on Wednesday nights, they're probably sick of hearing me say stuff like this or Zach because... I feel like I bring it up so much, but one thing that I always revert back to in so many different, I guess, points in my life or lessons on Wednesday nights is a few years back when we did a men's Bible study on prayer. Um, and that one has been really helpful for me for lots of different reasons. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that we learned about uh, was, you know, when you have these prayer requests, when you're praying these things to God, write them down, you know, or keep a journal of it, whatever it might be. Write down your prayer request because... Like I said before, a lot of times we don't know until after we've already gone through something and reflect back, then we see, okay, God was working in these different areas. 
Well, if we're keeping track of our prayer requests that we're taking to God regularly, we can look back and we'll be able to see, okay, yeah, God answered that prayer, and we can pr praise him for that. Um, and I've had instances throughout my life when that's happened where, you know, if I didn't keep better track of the prayer requests that I had been praying, I might have not recognized God in that moment. And that's probably the biggest takeaway that I took from that, um, that Bible study is that we can see how God works in every aspect of our life if we just look for it. Um, and again, that's one of the great things about the Old Testament. You can read through all these stories that seem like they might have nothing to do with Jesus coming and dying for us. But if you read through them, really, and, and see the connection that they all have with each other, you can see God in each and every one of the stories and see God shining through even the genealogies. Um, so that's what's so awesome is that, yes, that wholehearted obedience, if we truly follow after what God wants us to follow after with all of our heart, we will receive that blessing. He promises of the coming temple, the coming glory of Jesus. That's that blessing is going to come, but it's not always going to come in our own time. It's not going to come when we want it to come. But what does that do? That just allows us to seek to rely on God even more. And that's why he was encouraging them. He goes, yes, I know it's difficult right now. It seems like a big job ahead of you. And I know that the old temple was this amazing thing, and you think that it's probably never going to live up to that one. But I promise you this blessing is going to come. So he's encouraging them. So that's where we can kind of take this uh, lesson from then. We can know that the blessing is coming. Um, it might not always be immediately, but it is going to come. So number three, the third thing I want to talk about um, is the fact that building the temple, building that, the building that they're putting up, it's not enough. Um, so we're going to read verses 10 through 14 of chapter 2. So in verse 10, it says, In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. All right, so what, what's going on here? What are they talking about? First of all, if, if you're the priest that Haggai's coming to with these questions, you're like, what's, why are you asking? What's the point of this? Like, are you, are you trying to see if you can make this, you know, these different things holy by touching something else holy? Like, is it just a random question? What is it? So they're probably a little bit confused, but that's okay because we can get confused at times and God still loves us. So... Um, we see them talking about, okay, if I have this holy flesh in the skirt, and the guy has this holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, um, and then with that garment touches these other things, are they going to become holy? And they say no. And they say, well, if I have this unclean thing, and it touches these other things, does it make them unclean? Yes, it does. So what's the point of that? Really, this is a picture of how destructive sin can be. Um, if we are spending time, you know, with the wrong kind of crowd, or we're hanging out in the places that we know that we shouldn't be, uh, that's going to start showing in our own lives. We're going to start, um, if you want to use a biblical picture, we're going to be bearing the fruit of those, uh, those crowds we're hanging out with, those places that we're going to, whatever it might be. Um, but on the flip side, 
well, what if instead of going to those places, hang out with those people, I go to church, hang out with people at church? That's great. That's awesome. But that's still not enough to save you. So that's really what he's kind of talking about here. He's talking about how destructive sin can be. <clears throat> um, and so even though they're building this temple, they're saying, okay, we're following what God wants us to do. We're building this temple like he wants us to. Even though they're building that, they're still not done. They're still sinful in God's eyes. Because if they just build a temple and that's all they do, they don't use it for what it's for. They don't go and make sacrifices. Then what's the point of having it anyway? Um, that's the same with us. We need Jesus. You know, we, again, why do we have the law? We have the law to show us how much we need Jesus. We show, to show us how we don't measure up in God's standards as far as being perfect. So we need Jesus in our lives. And so we can go to church all we want or we can do all the right things as much as we possibly can, but our heart is really what matters. We can come to church, you know, dress up for people coming to church, whatever it might be. We could be the nicest person that, that works at wherever we work. Everybody might think we're the nicest person ever in the world, but if our heart is still lacking Jesus, then we're still sinners. And so it's the same thing with them. They're building the temple, but that's not going to be enough for them. They still need God. And so, again, we come to, we come to church, we sing the songs. Where's our heart? Is our heart really in worshiping God? Is it really in opening our hearts to what he has for us in the word. Whatever it might be, where is our heart? That's the key. Um, are we following Christ in our heart? And so that's really the main thing that, you know, he's really kind of wrapping up. And as he goes on, he, um, he sends them some more encouragement, uh, talking more about what is to come for them. Um, but really, it's, the picture is, you kind of look back at the whole, the whole book. We see that they came back, they immediately went to God with building altars, then they get distracted, and then it comes to the point where they're completely ignoring God. Then God comes and says, all right, this is what's happening. Your land's going to suffer. You're going to suffer because you're not seeking after me. You're focused on your own lives and everything uh, about your houses. My house lays in ruins. So focus on my house. Build my temple. They go ahead and do that. Then they become discouraged. And then now he's saying to be encouraged that blessing is going to come, but you have to realize when you're done building that temple, you're still not done. Like, that's not the end product. And that's the same with us. You know, we can come to church every week, but if we're not wholeheartedly following after Christ, then where are we really? Are we just coming because we feel like we have to? Or are we coming to make an appearance? Whatever it might be. So let's kind of take a step back and kind of look at ourselves with this as, like we talked about before, kind of a mirror to look at it and look back at ourselves, see where we kind of relate or measure up. First of all, are we focused on our own houses or our own plans? You know, a lot of times we have our own plan for our life. You know, if you were to go into, you know, maybe a job interview, they might ask you, what's your five-year plan, 10-year plan, whatever it might be, um, which is good. It's fine to have those plans looking down the road to be prepared for things, but we also have to remember that our plan needs to follow up or it needs to line up with God's plan. We need to seek what God's will is in our lives. So are we focused on our own house and our own plans, or are we focused on seeking God first, building his house, build, you know, following his plans, and then letting our plans fall into place with that? Secondly, are we making excuses? We saw they were making excuses saying, well, you know, now is not the time to do this. You know, we're going to do it 
I'll get to it. It's like, you know, if your mom told you to take out the trash, you say, I'll get to it, I'll take care of it. Um, we all know you're not going to get to it. That's not going to happen. You're just, just going to keep nagging you and nagging you until somebody else ends up taking it out. So are we making those excuses? Are we kind of putting off serving God? Um, and that could be anything. That could be, you know, following his will for my life. It could be God could be calling you to serve in some kind of ministry in church, which, plug for next week, we're going to talk about ministry. So if you want a good idea about that, come on back and be ready to hear some something about ministry. So there's your cliffhanger for the week. But uh, <clears throat> are we pushing off God and saying, yeah, God, I know you want me to do that, but right now is not the best time for me. My schedule is pretty busy. I have all these things at work, things with family. You know, I got my hobbies that I like to do on the weekend. Again, when we're doing that, we're starting to prioritize things above God. We're doing exactly what the Israelites were doing. Ign forgetting about God, ignoring him, ignoring where he's brought us from. We're putting those things above him. And again, if we're not valuing Christ above everything, then we're not valuing him at all. So are we making those excuses? Are we really just kind of kind of putting them on the back burner, shoving them off, saying, yeah, God, I'll get to it. I'll do it eventually. And then another question, a final question, what kind of houses are we building? Are we building a house that's going to last? Are we building one that's built on God, built on Christ, having that solid foundation, and that's one that's going to last? Or are we focused on building one that is surrounded on a, or surrounded really kind of founded on our own selves. And that's another thing that we're going to talk a little bit about next week as far as ministry. Um, if, if I'm working in a ministry, whatever it might be, so let's use the youth group for an example. If when I'm serving on Wednesday nights in the, min, in the youth group and I'm making it all about myself and not making the foundation Christ, then when I'm out of that ministry for whatever reason it might be, when I'm gone, you know, when I die however many years down the road, if that ministry is, the foundation is me, and it really relies on me and not on Christ, then when I'm gone, it's going to crumble. And then the people are going to suffer because of that. And so what kind of house are we building? What plans are we following? Are we building our own plans, our, our own houses? Are we focused on building ministries or relationships on us, or are we building them all on Christ, that solid foundation? It's just like the song in Sunday school, you know, the wise man building his house upon the rock. The foolish man building his house upon the sand. I'm not going to make you guys sing that today, but maybe we'll do it next week. I don't know. So, no, we probably won't because if I say that we will, some people might not come back. So, um, but are we building the right kind of houses? So those, those three questions. Are we focused on our own houses or our own plans? Are we making excuses? And what kind of house are we building? Is it one that's focused on God, centered on him, or is it focused on us? So as we, you know, leave here today, th those are the things that I want us to think about. Um, as we go out into our lives thinking about the fact, okay, am I getting distracted away from God? Am I forgetting who he is, who he's been for me in my life, where he's brought me from, where he's brought me to? I need to remember to look back and see how amazing he is so that I can stay focused on him. It's so easy to get distracted each and every day with all the distractions that we have, work, family, you know, now you got all different kinds of social media, uh, could be what are the Tigers going to do at the trade deadline? That's a headache for sure. So if you can ignore that altogether and just try and stay focused on God, you'll be in a lot better shape. And so that's really what, us, what I want us to take with us today. 
all three of those questions that I just gave to you, if we can just keep the idea of focusing on God and not getting distracted with things around us, then it's going to be much more easy for us to look at those questions and our answer be on the right side of those questions. So we're going to go ahead and pray here, and then we're going to have an invitation. Um, and so as, as uh, the band is playing a song, the song, um, just kind of look at, look at yourselves. We can look at ourselves with those questions and kind of reflect on our own lives. Are we focused on God or are we focused on our own houses? Are we focused on our own plans? Um, am I getting distracted? Am I making excuses? Whatever it might be, wherever this might have reached you today, um, just take that to God and uh, just lift it up to him in prayer. So let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Dear God, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for um, bringing us all out here today and I just thank you for uh, the message that we're able to see here in the book of Haggai, God, that um, it's very easy to get distracted and to lose focus of where we need to be, God. It's very easy to get to the point to where we're even ignoring you completely in our lives, God. And I just pray that if we are there, that we would open our eyes, that we would come back to you, that we would focus on um, building our lives, our plans around you, God, that you would be the foundation of that. Um, and I pray that if, if you're calling us to serve in some kind of ministry, to witness to somebody, a family member or a coworker, that we would um, stop making excuses, stop putting it off, God, that we would uh, just follow in obedience wholeheartedly after you in that area, God. Um, and I just pray that as we leave here that we just remember where we were before and where we are now, where you brought us through, God. And uh, I just pray that we remember that, that quote, that quote that says that Christ is not valued at all until he's valued above all, God. I pray that we would just value above everything else. And I just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>